In July of 2010, Anne Rice, who is the author of those really popular vampire chronicles, announced that she was quitting Christianity. This is what she wrote. Today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or being a part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years, I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity. My faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from pessimistic atheist lost in a world I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity. Can someone follow Jesus without following his followers? Let me answer with a quote of 1 Corinthians 12, 27, and then a recycled illustration I assume that you love or have forgotten. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul says that those who are in Christ are his very body. And now my anecdote, which you're probably going to remember. At any rate, when I was pretty young, I have no idea how old exactly. Uh, it was one of those few times my father was preparing dinner, and he was cutting what I think is ham. It's still fuzzy to me. And as he was cutting it, he didn't use a serrated knife, which I guess is important. And the knife slid off of the ham and through his finger. It severed the, pig, the top part of his finger away from the rest of it. And what my mom did was she took that finger, and uh, she threw it on a ice in a bag, like a Ziploc baggie. And so we went on to the hospital. And upon arriving at the hospital, the surgeon, was able to take some thread and reattach that finger to his hand and it regained functionality and vitality at that point. Simply reattaching the finger to the body gave it life. And so, as we've argued in the past, likewise, the person who is severed from the local church and claims Christ is on ice. They will not have vitality or functionality or life, unless they are reunited to the body. You see, a Christian divorced from the body of Christ is dying and rotting. Spiritual life apart from the body is indeed grotesque and unsustainable. Leave a finger on ice long enough, and it will blacken and die. Which returns us to our question, can someone be united to Jesus without being united to his followers? I think we could say perhaps, but if the body of Jesus, if the church is the body of Jesus, then the spiritual life that one would experience in isolation could only be deemed unhealthy, unholy, unchristlike, and unsustainable. In fact, the New Testament can't even conceive of an unchurched Christian. If this is true, then our question becomes, why do some who claim Jesus cut themselves off from the church? 
Why do some members of Christ choose to stay on ice instead of connected to the body? More succinctly, why do those some who claim Jesus refuse to belong? Uh, Let me confess, I was one of those who refused to belong for many years. Uh, And having been one of those for many years who professed to follow Jesus but had never obediently connected myself to a local church, uh, I think the ultimate answer to that question is why I didn't belong was happiness. And so some of, the, some of the things underneath of that happiness, if you'll let me explain, was that I believe that somehow by withholding myself from participating in the activities of the church, that that would work out better for me. I mean, after all, my faith was personal. It was just me and Jesus. And in my selfishness, I withheld my gifts from those God had purposed me to serve and be served by. In my pride, I persuaded myself that I didn't need anyone else. I just needed to walk with Jesus. The truth was, I was on ice, stumbling along a path that was all but eclipsed by darkness. Until God, thankfully, in his providence, sent faithful men and women into my life who gently challenged my arrogance and heroically nudged me back into fellowship with the church. They cared enough to courageously call me to repentance with the teachings of Christ. And I learned a lesson that still boggles my mind, that while my faith is personal, it's not just that, it's much more. See, faith in Christ is personal, but it's never private. It's always connected to the collective people of God. See, selfishness and pride, those were both products of my pursuit of happiness. I think joy, after all, is the reason people do what they do. Jonathan Edwards always argued that people always act according to their strongest desire, which is usually to be happy. (laughs) And so I thought somehow, by withholding myself, I would be happier. And ultimately, all I was was more selfish, cut off. Any happiness I gained was counterfeit and empty. I think the real question that I and those who have lived as unconnected Christians have is this. How can I have a healthy and happy life? I think that's it. I think it's simple. And we just answer it wrongly. I don't think that's a bad question. But I think when we cut ourselves off from community, we've answered it wrongly, believing somehow that our life will be healthier and happier if it's lived in isolation. I think the correct answer to this question, in a word, is fellowship. It is fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the children of God that brings true, lasting, and eternal joy. Which brings us to our main idea. What I'm going to argue from 1 John 1 this morning is that happiness... Contentment is found in fellowship with the family of God. And when I say the family of God, I mean God and his people together. As I said, we're going to be in 1 John 1, and we're going to tackle that this morning by considering three things. The foundation of fellowship, the goal of fellowship, and the evidence of fellowship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, 
thank you that you have revealed to us your word. In it, that you tell us how life works best. We just pray that we would submit ourselves to you and your design. Thank you that the gospel is good news. That though we have sinned against you, you have redeemed us from our slavery to sin. And bought us back and called us your sons. We thank you that in Christ we stand to inherit all good things. Especially life together with you and your people. God, this morning my prayer is that you would afflict the comfortable among us and comfort the afflicted with your words. Give us ears to hear. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the foundation of fellowship, and I think before we actually read the text together, it's important to discuss what does this word, fellowship, actually mean? The word translated as as fellowship is translated elsewhere as communion or partnership, participation in and sharing in. John uses it to speak about our intimate union with God and with one another. I I like Thabiti's definition. He says this, fellowship is the life of God in the soul of man, experienced personally by believing the truth and shared relationally in the church. I mean, what a robust definition. The soul, I'm sorry, the life of God in the soul of man. Fellowship is a word that is used to describe how the life of God in us connects us to others who share in the life of Jesus and results in our joy. It is the church's sharing in the life of God that binds us together in a spiritual relationship that is more profound, thicker, stronger, and longer lasting even than blood ties. Fellowship is an intimate relationship forged by God's covenant of love in which we participate when we fulfill Jesus' command to love him and one another. I think Bruce Milne is helpful here. He writes this. Love is really what fellowship is all about. Where there is love for one another, there will be fellowship. Without love, however, Fellowship is only a word. See, fellowship is that loyal enjoyment of cross-shaped community. It is living in and with the whole family of God. It's doing, as Bonhoeffer might have said, life together. It is fellowship to which John brings our attention in verse 1 of chapter 1 of this letter. He writes, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. Testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. This sentence is a little bit of a grammatical knot, right? You read that, it's one you have to read through a few times before you can comb out the tangles and figure out what exactly is going on. But once we do that, John's point is both profound and easily understood. What he's saying is, the everlasting God, Jesus, 
left God the Father, entered space and time by becoming a man, and purchased eternal life for those who participate in his life by faith. Let me maybe try to phrase it a little bit differently. I don't know if that was less convoluted or not. Uh, The source of life, this is kind of what John was writing. He's saying the source of life who has existed eternally became a man, showed himself to me and the other apostles, and has made a way for us to have fellowship with God the Father when we have fellowship with him, God the Son. It's true. He appeared to us. We heard his voice. We saw his face. We touched his hands. And now we proclaim him to you so that you also might have fellowship with us and with him. John Stott says it this way, The eternal entered time and appeared to human beings. The word became flesh and thus presented himself to the people's three higher senses, hearing, sight, and touch. One thinks about how in John's gospel, uh, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see it for myself. Which actually, he gets a really bad rap. Everybody calls him Doubting Thomas. But everybody else in John, the pattern is they see and then they believe. And Thomas is like, hey, you all got to see, you've believed. I just, I want to see and believe too. At any rate, he says, I'm not going to believe until I see him and I put my hand where the spear was plunged into his side and where the nails were driven into his hands. And then Jesus presents himself to Thomas and says, do not disbelieve, but believe. You see, John is here proclaiming Christ for a similar reason, so that we might see him in the gospel and believe. John's goal is the goal of the gospel, which is to bring men and women into happy fellowship with God and each other. I mean, the reason that Jesus came and lived the life he should have lived, died the death he should have died, and raised from the dead, is so that when he returns to end all evil, he can end it without ending you. Our God is good, and he deals with evil in the world. It's only those who take shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb that escape judgment, because their judgment has been poured out on Christ. I mean, Jesus went to the cross for the glory of God and for you. Because you were the joy set before him. Jesus, the source of life, died so that when you die, you don't have to stay dead. He lives so that you can have fellowship with him, the Father, the Spirit, and one another. The foundation of fellowship, John says, is Jesus Christ, the one who John walked with, talked with, one whom he laid his eyes on. The foundation of fellowship is Jesus, whom John was preaching. Which brings us to our first diagnostic question this morning. Do I, you might ask yourself, do I have fellowship with Jesus? One of the things that John's going to do throughout the letter is he's going to press us into asking questions of ourselves to determine whether or not our faith is genuine or counterfeit. Do you have fellowship with Jesus? I think one of the marks we see uh, in this letter, we'll see it in in verse 4 in just a second, is that one of the things that evidences a relationship with Jesus is a desire to share Jesus with others. 
both evangelistically with those who do not yet know him and encouragingly with those who already do know him, which makes sense because we talk about what we love. C.S. Lewis always says praise is the culmination of joy. And so when my Mountaineers every once in a while pull off a victory in football, hopefully over Oklahoma this year, right? I'm waiting for that, maybe K-State. I am going to let you all know about it, right? I'm going to tell you, my Mountaineers, they won. It's awesome. Or maybe, for example, if, if I were trying to get you all, and we're, we're in fellowship with one another mostly, if I were trying to get you all to guess a particular church member, I might say something along the lines of, man, he really loves firearms. Right? Y'all, know, y'all know exactly who I'm talking about. Actually, there might be a few of you now that I think about that. Or, uh, or if I say, he's, he's a longtime visitor, but he loves politics. But Josh had a great pun last week. He, he said, Paul politics. Right? It's good. I mean, if you've been around one another enough, you learn one another's hobbies and habits. Learn to figure out what we love, what we get excited about. Dale's not here, but you, if you're around him enough, you'll learn that he loves bluegrass music. And he calls it, quote, real music. You know that Janet loves to paint, and that Susan loves Shackley, that Malcolm and Linda and Henry enjoy gardening. You learn that what makes Barb and Stan light up like nothing else is when Keenan visits, or if you get a baby in Stan's hands. You also learn that, they, that Barb doesn't like the cattle as much as Stan, right? They've got cows. We talk about what we love, what's going on in our lives. Praise is the culmination of joy. What do your words reveal about what's in your heart. Do you have fellowship with Jesus? Now that we've considered the fountain of fellowship, let's contemplate its goal together as we look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Colin Cruz comments, The author recognizes that his own joy in Christ cannot be complete if fellow believers for whom he feels some responsibility are in danger of departing from the truth by becoming involved in another fellowship, one of darkness, a fellowship which he will soon prove to be bogus because it does not really involve true fellowship with the Father and the Son. In 2 John 4 and 3 John 4, we find similar sentiment expressed by the elder that joy comes from knowing that others walk in the truth. And so we see that one goal of fellowship is our joy. Look at verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. One of the things throughout Scripture that we see is light and darkness are used as metaphors. And the metaphor that John is employing here is he's substituting light for the holiness of God. And this will become clearer throughout the letter, but I figured I'd tell you now because it's relevant to what we're talking about. So according to verse 5, God is absolute, perfect light. God is holy. And I think holiness is another goal of fellowship. The goal of fellowship is twofold, and we can't really uh, divide them from one another. They go hand in glove, if you will. Happiness and holiness. 
though at first blush the connection between the two might not be readily apparent. Holiness, it is it's goodness and, and righteousness and beauty. I mean, it describes the very things that thrill our hearts. I think holiness is actually tantamount to happiness. That you can't really have one without the other. Again, this isn't something that strikes us as readily apparent. We, typically, I think in our culture, when somebody uh, thinks about holiness, they think, well, that's not happy. That person's usually upset. They've got pursed lips, and they don't really uh, know how to cut loose or relax or laugh. I don't know why that is, that we think of holiness as kind of a, a killjoy, if you will. Perhaps it's because in our sinfulness that we've convinced ourselves the pleasures of sin are somehow more pleasurable than the pleasures that are at the right hand of God. They are not. In fact, the pleasures of sin cannot deliver, cannot fulfill, cannot satisfy. Sin is always a cruel taskmaster. It enslaves and leaves its victims heavy with guilt and sitting in shame. The delights of sin oppress and exploit. But holiness, holiness is that kind of joy that brings no shame. No embarrassment. Holiness is the kind of joy that knows freedom instead of captivity. You see, the happiness wrought by holiness is God-given, blood-bought, and resurrection-secured. As we affectionately obey God in response to what he's done for us in the gospel, we actually grow in holiness. We become in practice what he's declared us to be in Christ, which is beautiful. Holy as he is holy. I think when you really come to grips with the gospel that you are so wicked that Jesus had to die for you, and at the same time so loved by him that he was glad to die for you, like when you realize that God is for you in all things, that he is for your joy, it becomes clear that real freedom, real lasting happiness, well, they're tangled together with holiness, with becoming like him. Real freedom, real joy is found not in the absence of restrictions, but finding the right ones. For example, a fish, because it absorbs oxygen from the water rather than the air, is only free if it's restricted and limited to water. But if we take a fish and throw it on the grass, its freedom to move and even live is not enhanced, but destroyed. The fish dies if we do not honor the reality of its nature. Likewise, we as people will not increase our joy. We will not increase our own life situation unless we function to the end for which we were created, which is the glory and enjoyment of God. See, when we walk in the light as God is in the light, the chains of sin shrivel and melt. God has revealed in his word how life works best, and when we listen to his voice instead of our hearts, our joy is maximized. Joy is maximized when we are obedient to him. And in this context, when we are in fellowship with him and his people. We fully flourish only when we are in fellowship with the family of God. 
and context in which we express this love is the local church. L- look at verses 6 through 10. I'm going to give set up first and then read, and then we'll work through. Uh, but what you have going on here, if you see that phrase, if we claim, you see it in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. It, he's actually starting out to give these claims of false teachers, which is a group of people that have left the fellowship of those that are believing in Jesus Christ and founded on the gospel, and they're doing their own thing. It's a divergent gospel, one that cannot save. And John's saying, this is what these jokers are saying, but this is why they're wrong. And so for like example in verse 6, says, if we have fellowship with him, and while we walk in the darkness, we're liars. So he's saying if we say we practice holiness, or that we walk with him, but we don't practice holiness, we prove ourselves to be untrue. So you see what's going on, he's going to be answering those. How we're going to go at, that, at this, though, is a little bit different, uh, because the scope of this sermon is to focus on fellowship. What we're going to do is we're going to consider verses 7 and 9 together, and then we'll drop down and consider verses 6, 8, and 10 together. Y'all with me? All right, good. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Verse 7 still, it blows my mind. I, I, every time I read it, I'm struck by it. Because it's just, it's unexpected, right? You read, but if we walk in the light as he, that's God, is in the light, we have fellowship with, and we expect to read, God. But that, that's not what verse 7 says. It says, right, if we walk in the light as he, that's God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. One another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This, this is profound. Maybe to make the point clear, we could paraphrase the verse like this. If we do not have fellowship with one another, we walk in the darkness and do not know Jesus, the Son of God. I think verse 7 gives us another way to ponder our answer to the first diagnostic question, does it not? Do I have fellowship with Jesus? John says an indicator here is do you have fellowship with God's people? Our union with Jesus and our inclusion in the big C universal church, that's all Christians from all churches everywhere for all time, our inclusion in that group is evidenced by our participation in the little C local church. Does that make sense? Your inclusion in the big C church is evidenced by your participation in the little C church where you're actually living out these commands together to love one another. These are concrete things. It's not ethereal or or made up just imaginative. God calls us to love actual people in an actual place at an actual time throughout all of our lives. Faithfully following Jesus requires following his followers. When we genuinely share fellowship with Jesus, we will delight in sharing fellowship with his people because those who love Jesus have their hearts shaped after him. They end up loving what Jesus loves. And you know what Jesus loves? Jesus loves his church. He died for his church. 
Jesus so identifies himself with the church that to have fellowship with him is to have fellowship with his people. This is why when Paul is slaughtering Christians right before his conversion in Acts 9-4, Jesus doesn't say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He so identifies with his church that Ephesians 3.10 tells us that it is through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's wisdom is made known through God's church. He so identifies with his church that Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 tell us that the church is Jesus' body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You can't have the fullness of Christ without the church. That's staggering. I mean, not as staggering to the New Testament church, but to us as Americans in this country where uh, spirituality has been turned into a private and personal matter rather than a communal one. It, it is shaking. It's shaking, but it's true. You cannot have the fullness of Christ without the church. Still, why do some who claim Christ refuse to belong? And I think the answer is this, and it, it's a hard truth. They're not willing to pay the cost. You see, fellowship is not easy, but it's worth it. I mean, it's like anything else that's worth doing. Uh, going to the gym, for instance, and getting in shape is not easy. It's not easy to eat green food instead of candy. But discipline in going to the gym and monitoring your diet results in greater health and happiness. Parenting is not easy, but discipline in consistently disciplining your children keeps them from becoming hobbit demons, right? It results both in their betterment, their better health, your better health, and your joy, and ultimately their happiness as well. Because freedom, it's not the absence of restrictions, but it's having the right ones. And so as parents, you want to give them the right restrictions so that they might flourish. It's the same thing our Heavenly Father does for us. It's not easy to have fellowship, but it's one of those restrictions that God has called us to live within. He's saying, you're going to find freedom and happiness here with my people. It's not easy to have fellowship, but it's not supposed to be easy to follow Jesus after all. He does say in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those who find it are few. He continues, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What does the fruit of your life tell you about your fellowship with Jesus? 
Specifically, what does the fruit of your fellowship with God's people tell you about your relationship with Jesus? Jesus continues, verse 21 of chapter 7 in Matthew. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not easy to follow Jesus. It's not easy to walk in the light and fellowship with one another. It's not easy to continually confess our sins to one another and to God. Oh, but it's worth it. It's wonderful to receive the happiness that comes from walking in holiness. It is marvelous to continually give thanks to the gracious God who shed his blood on the cross to cleanse us from all sin and all unrighteousness when we confess. Did you see that word in verses 7 and 9? All sin, all unrighteousness. Read, Read it big, in all caps, underline. He's faithful and just. He paid all of our debt to God. Jesus paid it all. We deserve nothing. Yet he purchased for us all the blessings of heaven. The foremost being fellowship with him and his people. With one another. Following Jesus is not easy, but it brings deep and lasting, unassailable joy. And that joy is only completed when we find ourselves in obedience to God's command, walking in the light with one another. Friends, true Christian fellowship cannot be bought at a bargain store. It's not at five below. It can't be had on the cheap. It takes the blood, sweat, and tears that come from denying oneself and carrying a cross behind Jesus. If someone claims Jesus, but is not in fellowship with his people, they are in sin. The person that says, I love Jesus, but I hate his body, I want to be a Christian, but I reject Christianity, is stumbling along a dimly lit path. They've proven by their fruits that they are unwilling to pay the cost of discipleship. Even though if we think about it, the cost of discipleship for us is significantly less than for those who follow Jesus in the first century. I mean, for us, the cost is usually minimal. Get out of bed early enough to get to church on Sunday. Participate in the gathering of the saints. That's perhaps the most important one, actually. Be around people that you don't really like all that often. People that are different ages, generations, color, skin, backgrounds. Maybe that rub you the wrong way. I mean, the cost for us is usually just inconvenience, and inconvenience at the end of the day is just a byproduct of intimacy. In fact, I would argue all real life-changing love is inconvenient. In the sacrifices we make are child's play, yet still we refuse to make them. I mean, think about those who have gone before us, whose blood was sprinkled as seed that the gospel might grow. And we can't get out of bed. Can't make being in one another's lives a priority. 
Shame on us. Christianity is about following Jesus, not soothing yourself about your eternal destination. The person that soothes themselves instead of counting the cost goes to hell just as easily as the person that's in open rebellion. Self-deceived. Jesus demands our whole lives, and he doesn't bargain for just part of them. He is worthy of your whole life, and he deserves to tell you how to spend it. People always want to know, what's God's will for me? To spend your life for the gospel. His will is for you to love him, to obey his word, to be in fellowship with him and his people. To share the joy of salvation. To be marked by your union with him. You want to follow Jesus? Deny yourself. So we arrive at another diagnostic question. Am I willing to pay the cost of discipleship? Am I willing to follow Jesus? into fellowship with his people. If you're not and you claim Christ, uh, it's my contention that you are self-deceived and walking in darkness. That you're filling out some of these symptoms described in verses 6, 8, and 10. In verse 6, the symptom is that someone claims Jesus but doesn't practice the truth. They do not pursue holiness. In other words, they claim Jesus, but they keep doing life the way they want to without any authority over them or accountability to other Christians. Colin Cruz points out this is not enough. This is not enough to claim to know God. People must also live in the light of that truth. Verses 8 and 10, the symptom is claiming to be without sin. Cruz continues, it's worth noting that to claim to have fellowship with God while walking in the darkness, makes a person a liar. Verse 6. To claim to be without sin involves lying to oneself. Verse 8. And makes God out to be a liar as well. Verse 10. See, the point here is, if you refuse to recognize and repent of sin, it is evidence that you are living in darkness and that you are still enslaved to your sin rather than walking as a son of Christ. Tricking ourselves into justifying sin, it is something that I think all of us have probably done and do from time to time. One of the many benefits of being in fellowship with God's people is that they don't let us pull the wool over our eyes enough. I'm so thankful for those of you that correct sin in my life when you see it. I hope that you're thankful that I correct it for you too. What I mean to say is that when we cut ourselves off from accountability in the community of God, self-deceit, self-justification, selfishness, they all become way, way easier. We become easy prey for the enemy. I mean, the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil are quickly believed when you're telling them to yourself in isolation. This is what sin does. It alienates, it separates, and destroys. When sheep wander from the fold thinking they can survive apart from the flock and without shepherds, They keep wolves well-fed. Brothers and sisters, divorcing yourself from the light, from the fellowship with the church, 
It's not going to make you happier or healthier. In fact, it will marry you to the kingdom of darkness. And don't miss that. We are at war. Don't live as functional materialists. The easiest way for Satan and demons to distract, defeat, and devour you is to isolate you and to make you comfortable in that isolation. Satan is happy to let you live ignorantly in his dungeon with no accountability, no authority, and to make you feel like life's going pretty good. I love uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you have probably heard of it. But, but what happens in the Screwtape Letters is that you have this seasoned, successful demon named Screwtape who writes to a young demon who's named Wormwood, who's like on his first assignment. And so in each letter, Screwtape tells Wormwood about how he might better lead the person away from Jesus. And it's so funny, uh, the person that the demon is assigned to is called the patient. And so there's all kinds of fun things like that. Uh, but the um, gravity of the words and the truth behind what Lewis writes, it really is striking. And so I'm going to quote some various uh, parts of it to you. And as you listen, I wonder if it won't sound familiar, things that maybe you've heard before in your own mind. <clears throat> My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There's no need to despair, though. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief stay in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished building on the new grounds. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them really understand. Next, when he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has to this point avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. Your patient, thanks to our Father below, I think that's funny, your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At this present stage, you see, he has no idea of Christians. He has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which, in fact, is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and bare legs. Never let it come to surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. Later celebrating a success, Screwtape continues. We know that we have produced a change of direction in his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy. 
He must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change, of course, are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. Are you being taken out of orbit around Christ? And Satan and demons work hard to keep you in isolation because they know better than we do how much we need fellowship. I mean, we need fellowship like plants need the sun. Life in the light of fellowship brings flourishing and fruit, but life in the darkness of solitude brings death. Do not wither and die in isolation. Connect with God and his people. Membership in a local church is ultimately an invitation to follow Jesus by giving yourself to him and his people. I mean, it's a vehicle that Jesus has designated to drive us into maturity and joy. It's a kind of needle and thread that Christ uses to knit us onto his body. It's how we live out the reality of the gospel in our lives together. Our fellowship with one another helps us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Church, God has designed us to seek joy. And he's designed that joy to flourish and to grow only in fellowship with his entire family, him and his people. Indeed, it is only when we do life together that we're able to catch a scent and a taste and a glimpse of the glory that awaits all who will trust in Jesus. My hope is that we would together smell and see and taste that the Lord is good and that the fellowship to which he's called us is for our happiness. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we're able to uh, come together as your people in this place and worship you with one voice as one body. Lord, we confess that we're not perfect, that we are uh, broken, messy people. And that we follow a broken Savior who's made us whole and has called us to holiness. Grow this holiness within us as we pursue you and your will for our lives together. Help us as a church not to forget our mission, which is your glory. Let us to be a people that spends our lives for the gospel. Thank you for loving us. Don't, don't, don't ever let us get over that simple little phrase, Jesus loves me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.